Today on Inland Journal, the coronavirus and rare diseases. Later, we'll talk with a Spokane woman who has a daughter with what is considered to be a rare disease and the mother's passion to help other families who have their struggles with rare diseases. But first, we learned Wednesday that any day now, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services will send five people with the coronavirus to Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane. Those people have tested positive for what is now known as COVID-19, or the 2019 coronavirus. Providence officials say Sacred Heart was picked because it has secure airborne infection isolation rooms. It's one of 10 hospitals in the nation that will serve this function. Scientists all over the world are working to learn what they can about this version of the coronavirus. We called Christian McGorry, an assistant professor of biology at Eastern Washington University. McGorry and a colleague will speak about the coronavirus next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at Spokane's Southside Senior Center. McGorry is a disease ecologist. He studies the organisms that carry these diseases and those that pass them from one species to another. It is certainly a, a new pathogen that jumped from some other host, mostly bats in Wuhan, in, in this city in China, uh, and started spreading. However, we need to put it into perspective with other diseases that also spread. So when we hear coronavirus, most people have not heard this term before. Magori says there's a joke on the Internet that equates the coronavirus with a Mexican beer with a similar name. But we actually have uh, coronaviruses that we all probably have gotten before. Um, the common cold uh, is caused by several different kinds of viruses, and several of those are coronaviruses. They are the same group of viruses. We just have gotten infected with them in historic times, and we don't know when it exactly happened, and, and they are just what we call endemic, that they are just going around between people. Um, so in that sense, this pathogen is, is just another one of those viruses, but just because we see how quickly it spreads and how severe the symptoms can be in some people and how many people are getting infected, that causes a larger concern. If we want to put it into perspective with other pathogens in the U.S., right now we have uh, a larger than normal uh, flu epidemic going on right now in the U.S. that we don't talk about a lot, but up to this point, 14,000 people have died in the U.S. during this current flu season, and 26 million got infected. Whereas with this coronavirus, we only have 15 cases so far in the U.S., all of them quarantined, and uh, we don't have any indication, even though this outbreak started in December, that we would have an ongoing outbreak in the U.S. So does it tell us that the, the, the flu virus is more, is more dangerous to us than this particular coronavirus, or is that, is that a leap in, in logic? It's complicated because flu doesn't kill as many people in proportionally. So for the flu, it's about 0.1% of the people who get infected with the flu die in the U.S. in general. Uh, and with this virus, the percentage is somewhere between 2 and 3%. I think the latest I heard was 2.3%. Um, however, Anthony Fauci, the, the head of the NIH, was uh, talking about recently how those estimates might be too high. 
because they were mostly based on cases that happened at the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan, where there are so many cases that the health system might be completely overrun and there might be people who just don't get the required support to recover. In other countries, like in the U.S., the same disease might have a much lower mortality rate, especially if they are prepared and we know what we're doing and we have enough supplies. Why has this been so difficult for China? I'm not trying to minimize it. It is contagious. And so in that sense, it's hard to uh, control. And and the Chinese government has really done um, extraordinary steps in trying to control this outbreak. I mean, shutting down large metropolitan cities like they did is almost impossible to imagine in any other country than China. Uh, I don't think it would ever work in the U.S. And um, so they've done everything they could, but there has already been so much transmission happening within the city before they shut down them um, that by that time, it's sort of the cat was out of the bag. And right now, what I think what we're seeing is that with shutting down those cities and putting in preventive steps to avoid further transmission, we're hopefully getting to the point when the number of cases are going to go per day, not not the cumulative cases, so not the ones who have been already infected, but the new cases. Uh, it's hopefully going to start going down in the next couple of weeks, and then we can see and to the outbreak. But I want to emphasize that, you know, at the same time, these same kind of infections might have happened in the past, like, say, 50 years ago, and nobody would have noticed uh, because we didn't have the technology to test people. So right now it's fairly easy to get a test. It's called a PCR that amplifies the DNA of the virus and can test people if they have it. You know, 50 years ago, we didn't have anything like this. All we would know is that there are more people who are sneezing and coughing than before. And we would think, well, it's it's another cold outbreak and some, some people seem to be dying as a consequence, but we wouldn't have even known that there's something going on. Christian McGorry is an assistant professor of biology and biostatistics at Eastern Washington University. He and a colleague will speak about the coronavirus next Wednesday at 6 p.m. at Spokane's Southside Senior Center. Another view now of the coronavirus, this time focusing not on the biology, but on how we as a society view diseases like this. Kari Nixon is an assistant professor of English at Whitworth University. She studies medical humanities. One way that I think is really interesting, and there's been a good, lots of good work done by medical humanities scholars on the way that we define what an epidemic versus an endemic is. Um, And the sort of quick and dirty version that you could summarize those arguments in is to say that what we call an epidemic depends on how much we care about the people it affects. Um, So there's really good evidence, for instance, that polio was endemic to the human race since time immemorial, we've unearthed, or I think we have evidence on hieroglyphic tablets, um, portraits of leaders that clearly have polio. But it was when it started to affect white, affluent, middle-class Americans in the mid-century that it was suddenly a, a panic, and we dubbed it more of an epidemic. 
I personally felt that I saw this in Dallas when we had a few Ebola cases there. I was living within walking distance of the hospital where they all were. I drove by every day the nurses' apartments, and I was watching as the decontamination crews emptied their apartments. Um, You know, we have a tendency to think that Ebola or to treat it as sort of naturally occurring at those low levels in certain parts of Africa. It's treated as endemic. Yet when it came here, we had three cases in Dallas. It was an outbreak, which I would say is a a good enough word to say that we're treating it like an epidemic, whether or not epidemiologists are truly calling it that. So as we see these pictures of people in China in Wuhan, a, a city of 11 million people, uh, streets are, are, are pretty sparse, mm. and people are walking around with masks on their face. Yeah. How do you view that? I mean, does that, does that take away the, the, the way that we view it because they're so far away from us? It's not that thing that is knocking on our door? Precisely. And, and that's also the double bind. Although we haven't yet said that coronavirus is, say, endemic to China. It's new. It's too new to be endemic. Um, That attitude, I think, defines a lot of how Americans look at disease globally, that um, that disease is over here, and thank God it's not over here with us, and yet we had what was the case in Everett, I guess, um, and there was mass hysteria, you know, because we have this fantasy of diseases being natural to everywhere but us in America. And that's just not true. Diseases will call our bluff every time because, spoiler alert, viruses don't care about our national borders that we've made up. And so I think that's why we have the panic about these relatively small cases because we've lived with our heads buried in the sand in this fantasy world where we've distanced disease imaginatively. And so when it comes over here in even small amounts, we kind of go to the other extreme and panic all of a sudden because we thought we were keeping these things imaginatively at bay. So what are the lessons we should learn from that? The way I look at it in um, my first book that's forthcoming in June and where I track the 19th century roots of this uh, legacy. And I start there because that's when we first had the pervasive idea that diseases were contagious. So I kind of get to the beginning of that that idea. What I often say in that book is that when we indulge in the fantasy that a disease is a disease of those people over there, however we're defining that population at the time, that creates its own spillover event. People want to talk about the spillover events from animal consumption in certain parts of the world. I would say we create spillover events when we deny the possibility that a disease can affect all of us and that somebody else's problem is indeed our moral responsibility to care about. Um, I think we saw this with the AIDS crisis in the 80s. The more we said that this was a disease of a certain population, the more it in fact spread (laughs) and affected more and more people outside of the population we were claiming it affected. In the 1880s, it was syphilis, same way. Um, There were all these laws trying to limit sex trafficking because people really believed that only sex workers spread that disease, not, say, the men who were their customers. And again, microbes will call your bluff because it doesn't work that way. Kari Nixon is a medical humanist and assistant professor of English at Whitworth University. 
And now to the practical effects of the coronavirus for some people in the Northwest, including business owners who ship their goods to Asia and oyster growers. Here's correspondent Anna King. China is usually the world's major manufacturer, so shipping revolves around the high-value products it sends around the world. When shipping containers are emptied on U.S. ports, they're refilled with produce, lumber, grain, soy, and meats. But right now, there are few containers coming out of China, and what's being shipped over is languishing in ports without any workers to unload the products and take them to markets. Right now, it's a crisis. Peter Friedman leads the Washington, D.C.-based Agriculture Transportation Coalition. He says Chinese ports are even out of plugs for refrigerated shipping containers, so containers are stacking up and perishables are rotting inside. Usually here at Weigart Brothers on Washington's coast, they'd be shucking 40 to 45 hours a week. Now owner Kenichi Weigert says he's worried about making payroll. The problem is shipping from China has dropped dramatically, and that means there aren't ships to carry U.S. goods back across the Pacific. Usually every Monday, Kenichi Weigert ships eight pallets of fresh jarred oysters to a customer in Hong Kong, but this week he's only got one to ship. Standing in his large cooler, Weigart says even orders to U.S. and Canadian Chinatowns are half of normal because people are afraid of catching the virus. The Chinatown areas in the cities are just, there's uh, nothing going on. People are staying home, people are staying in. Northwest gooey duck clams and Dungeness crab fishers are hurting too. As a fifth-gen oysterman, Weigart hopes he won't be the last in his family making a living on the mud of Willapa Bay. I'm Anna King in Nakata, Washington. And now to rare diseases, of which there are officially about 7,000, according to OrphanNet, which bills itself as the website for rare diseases and orphan drugs. What happens when your child or your spouse or your parent is diagnosed with a disease of which little is known? That happened with Mary McDermott, a Spokane financial planner, and her husband. They have two children, Charlie and Ruth. Ruth is three and a half. So Ruth's rare disease is called um, tuberous sclerosis complex, so TSC for short, and the, um, the non-super medical version is she doesn't, she's missing DNA that fights tumors. So tumors will form in her major organs, heart, brain, kidneys, lungs, and she has some on her skin. Um, and then seizures are a byproduct of the disease and also those tumors in her brain can cause them. Ruth has had surgery at least once to remove tumors. Developmentally, she's probably a good year behind where she should be. Um, so that affects her daily. Um, if she has a seizure, then that's a whole other um, category of how we kind of see how that day is going to go. Um, doctor's appointments you know, all of that, all of that stuff. So yes, I would say she's affected daily by that. 
And because Ruth is affected, her parents and sister are as well. The McDermott's have found whatever information they can about Ruth's disease and how it's been treated. Mary McDermott says the disease has been known long enough that some research has been done and money raised for more. And there is a lot of overlap with ours and a couple of the rare diseases out there that have to do with tumors. So I think there's good movement in our, um, our alliance for rare disease. We're 40 years old. So the McDermott's have something of a social network with parents in similar situations. But she says for others dealing with rare diseases, there's a sense of isolation. They feel like they're going it alone, especially when there are no doctors nearby who know much about their conditions. I would really like to be able to make a system, some kind of funnel, um, where most of our families have to travel at least to get the diagnosis, right? Because that's the first step. So once you get that diagnosis and you come back home, how can we wrap around them, funnel them through some form in our medical system where, okay, you have this rare disease and it's going to touch these four specialists and this is the first one you go to and this is how that process starts rather than kind of throwing darts and hoping, well, maybe I should go to the cardiologist or who's, who's, who's in charge, right? Who's, who's the overarching person that, that we're going to we got questions we need to email. For the last three years, McDermott and others in the community have sponsored a public forum about rare diseases on or around National Rare Disease Day. This year, that day is Saturday, February 29th, and McDermott has put together a panel discussion with someone who has a rare disease, someone related to someone with a rare disease, and a provider or community member active in the field. McDermott says those gatherings are aimed at providing a sense of community for families who are dealing with rare diseases. Through all this, the ones that, you know, are asking the questions in, in, the, in those meetings we have or they come up to me after, those are kind of the ones that we've kind of formed a like, hey, I'm, I'm doing this, you're doing this, how do we do it together? There's at least five, I'd say five to eight parents in Spokane that are on the board of their specific rare disease, they're making decisions, they're flying places to advocate, they're, they're doing all the things. McDermott is active too. A few weeks ago, she testified via video uplink for a bill in the Washington State Senate that would expand Medicaid coverage for people who have rare diseases. I'm lucky enough that me and my husband can still work. I am very privileged in that way. Let's, let's be clear that I'm here to represent others that aren't as privileged as I am. It doesn't appear that bill's going to pass. Meanwhile, McDermott and others are working to build supportive community for people who sometimes feel overwhelmed. So being able to find them and just be like, okay, maybe it's just lunch and we're like, this, this is hard. What, what are you doing about this? Or how can we get um, you know, our mental health um, docs in town to Skype with your specialist in Philadelphia? And who can we get a hold of in Spokane that would want to be a part of that and and what are your what what are you your issues now and what are mine and how can we kind of navigate this world together and not feel alone a long time ago we made peace with the fact that um, we are going to love our kids the most we can every day and whatever happens happens and uh, that's just the way that has to be we have to sleep and we have to live and we have to do all the things but that's a hard decision to make um, as a parent the Rare Disease Day event will be Friday, February 28th from 11.30 to 1.30 in the Academic Center on the WSU Spokane campus. It's free and open to the public. 
We finish with another story about a rare disease, ALS, and an effort made to raise money for research to find a cure and treatments. It's a program called ALS for ALS. Mike Shannon is the program director for the ALS Therapy Development Institute based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, though Shannon lives here. So ALS for ALS was put together about seven to eight years ago by uh, Mike and Cheryl Smith of Loftus Ranches, a hop-growing company and family down in, been in the valley for over 120 years, I think, in Yakima Valley. Uh, they also are the uh, kind of the parents of Bell Breaker Brewing Company, which is run by their adult children. And so eight years ago, they wanted to uh, find a way to support research at ALS Therapy Development Institute with a program that would provide hops to brewers in exchange for some percent of proceeds from the brewing of that beer going back to support the drug development research at the ALS Therapy Development Institute. Cheryl's family was afflicted with familial ALS, so they had generations of people that had the disease. And by funding the lab, the hope was and still is to expedite treatments and therapies, which, uh, you know, there is more progress in the last decade than there was in the previous two. So that's optimistic. We're optimistic about that. But the program itself has grown from about 60 brewers to this year, there'll be over 300. And we hope this year by adding four brew fests nationally, we'll be closing in on a million dollar program annually. We'll have an Inland Journal podcast next Tuesday that looks at ales for ALS and one of the Spokane area breweries that is creating a beer especially for it. Inland Journal airs every Thursday on Spokane Public Radio. The podcast is available anytime at spokanepublicradio.org. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Send your comments and story ideas to inlandjournal at kpbx.org. Thanks for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.